Good evening. Welcome to An Evening with John Meacham, a conversation with Senator Lamar Alexander. I'm Rusha Sams, President-Elect of Friends of the Knox County Public Library. This evening's event is brought to you by Union Avenue Books in partnership with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Senator Lamar Alexander is a seventh-generation Tennessean, born and raised in Maryville, twice elected governor of Tennessee, and first elected to the Senate in 2002. Since then, he's been re-elected twice to the Senate, three times to the chairmanship of the Senate Republican Conference, and he currently chairs the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Previously, Senator Alexander has served as the president of the University of Tennessee and U.S. Secretary of Education under George H.W. Bush. In 2016, the nation's governors created the James Madison Award to recognize members of Congress who support federalism and the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing states' rights. The governor's name, Senator Lamar Alexander, the first ever recipient of the James Madison Award. And now to our distinguished guest speaker, we extend a hearty East Tennessee welcome to John Meacham, award-winning author of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. Mr. Meacham was born in Chattanooga, educated at the Macaulay School, where he told me earlier he did like to do research, even in high school and the University of the South at Sewanee is where he received his collegiate lessons. He returned to teach history there at his alma mater in 2014. Mr. Meacham is a contributing writer for the New York Times Book Review, contributing editor of Time Magazine, and former executive editor and executive vice president at Random House. John Meacham is the author of several not just one, New York Times bestsellers, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, Franklin and Winston, An American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, for which he was awarded the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for Biography or Autobiography. In Soul of America, Author and historian Meacham helps us understand the present moment of crisis in American politics by looking back at critical, quite turbulent times in history when presidents and ordinary citizens came together, when hope overcame hatred, and when the better angels of our nature, a term used by Abraham Lincoln in his inaugural address, again and again prevailed and won the day. Welcome to Knoxville. Thank you. read a lot of biographies. Did you find something common in all those great individuals? Yes. That that what was that? Human agency matters. That we are all part of a great drama and our dispositions of heart and mind, the, the level and extent to which we engage in what Justice Holmes called the passion and action of the time matters. And so whenever one doubts the efficacy of a single action, I refer you to Rosa Parks or John Lewis. 
To me, the point of history is to tell the human drama, to illuminate how we got through problems in the past. Because if, if we act as though everything was just fine before a given election or a given moment, we're doing a disservice to the people who actually made the country. And it forecloses the possibility of our being able to think that we can do great things because people in the past did these remarkable things, but they were just like us. And it was always, always, as Wellington said of Waterloo, a close-run thing. America's a close-run thing. The revolution could have gone a different way. The War of 1812 could have gone a different way. The Civil War could have gone a different way. It's remarkable that we are, in fact, a continental nation in a coherent geographic way from an ocean to an ocean. It seems that, we, of course, it was going to be that way because we're used to it now. But imagine no, no country in the world had ever attempted an experiment in self-government over such a vast geographic space. And that was made possible not because of something inevitable, but because individual people made courageous decisions despite their flaws, not that they were flawless. And what I wanted to know was if you really climb back inside the moments, not as we see them now, but as they were lived, what would that tell you? If you were the editor of Newsweek in 1943, would you have looked at Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and said, you know what, they just don't know what's good. We need Wilson and Lloyd George again. And the answer is yes. And I think that's important to remember, and I think it's somewhat reassuring in the current climate that the oxygen of democracy is conflict. It is different opinions. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be a democracy. It would be an autocracy. The whole point of the country is to argue and to disagree is to find some provisional consensus for a time, hopefully solving problems. But all these solutions are, in fact, tenuous. We're, we're, the country was founded not to become perfect, but to become more perfect. And my view of biography and history is that, not that it's cultural Zoloft and not that it's escapism, but it is illuminating, it's orienting. If you know that Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill were criticized, attacked, 40% of the country couldn't say Franklin Roosevelt's name. They called him that man. <laughs> they did. Now he's, you know, if we, if we redid Rushmore, he, he'd be right there. Harry Truman left Washington with a 19% approval rating. Now everybody wants to be Harry Truman. So it seems to me that an engagement and conversation with the past not as a sentimental exercise, but as it was lived, I think it's reassuring. I don't think we learn as much as we should by looking up at the past adoringly or down on it condescendingly, but looking it in the eye, taking it for what it was, and thinking in 20, 30, 40 years, what will people say we missed? And then trying to take remedial action so maybe they won't have to say it. Parson Brownlow, Knoxvilleian, editor of the Knoxville Whig, the uh, this is a learned crowd. If you know Parson pre Brownlow, predecessor of the Journal, Knoxville Journal, governor, senator. This is what he said in 1856 on the public square in Nashville. 
He said, I therefore pronounce your governor, Andrew Johnson, here upon his own dunghill, an unmitigated liar and cognumator and a villainous coward. He is a member of a numerous family of Johnsons in North Carolina who are generally thieves and liars. <laughs> and though he is the best one of the family I've ever met with, I unhesitatingly affirm tonight there are better men than Andrew Johnson in the penitentiary. <laughs> now, now, I got this from Senator McKellar, who was writing in 1942, who said then, our Senator McKellar, it's strange but true that any man who publicly denounces another man immediately gets the attention of his audience and retains it as long as he denounces him. And then McKellar says, writing in 1942, about 1856, vulgarity was more tolerated in those days than it is today. So I guess your book could be titled, We've Seen It All Before and We've Survived It. Yes. Or did I miss something? No, it'd be a little, it wouldn't be quite as eloquent, uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm not that's right, but that, a seller list. That's why you're in the Senate and yeah, I, I do this. Right. Um, it's a good filibuster title. But, uh, and if you want to filibuster something, you could read this into the record. I want you to think about that. <laughs> Mr. Alexander goes to Washington. This could work. Um, uh, yes, of course it's happened before. If anyone should understand this point, it's Tennesseans. Right? I mean, so we were the last state out, the first state back. This part of the state was absolutely unionist, and yet the state, which is a fascinating microcosm, actually, of, of the country uh, then and now, lived with this tension from the beginning about a fundamental issue of slavery and freedom and power. And the American Revolution, 30% of the country were loyalists. They were Tories. The Revolutionary War in the South was a ferocious civil war. And so we had this, we had this incredible struggles where Senator Alexander goes to work, people were beaten with canes, senseless, which is redundant, but anyway, <laughs> um, on the floor of the Congress. You're a good sport, sir. Um, so, I, here's another way of thinking about it. If you think that somehow or another, November 2016 was a Rubicon that, that was never before seen. Until three years ago last month, if you were a gay American, you could not get married in this country. People say, oh, you know, the, the issue on the gay rights and gay liberties, that's moved so quickly. I've never heard a single gay person say that. Wasn't moving quickly if you were denied the right to fully express yourself, a right explicitly promised in the Constitution. 55 years ago, in our native region, we lived under functional apartheid. 55 years ago, lifetime of a lot of people here. 100 years ago, 150 years ago, we lost three quarters of a million Americans in order to fight over the definition of, of liberty. My message is not, it's happened before, so therefore, relax. It's that it's happened before, 
and we've gotten through it, so how did they get through it? And apply those lessons now. This is a unique moment. Not unprecedented, but unique. We have never had, just close your ears, um, <laughs> we've never had as unconventional a figure at the pinnacle of power in American history. That's unquestionable. I think he's president for two reasons, two numbers. One is 17%. 17% is the percentage of Americans who tell Gallup that they trust the federal government to do the right thing some or most of the time. That's down from 77% in 1965. So in 50 years, it's dropped 60 points. The second number is 130,000. That's the number the Commerce Department estimates that a family of four needs an annual household income to live what we would think of as a classic World War II middle-class life. 130,000. Household income in the United States is inching up, but it's about $57,000. So if you want to know why this populist provocateur became president, you know, fewer than one in five Americans trust Washington, and people feel that for the first time in what Henry Luce called the American century into the 21st century, the ladders to the middle class are at best rickety and at worst gone. And basically what the country, it seems to me, in the right number of electoral states was saying in November 2016 is if you're going to act like a reality show, we'll send you one. And I think that and it's, it's a populist. I think it's a spasm. I could be wrong, obviously. It does not feel like an entirely new volume in the American story. It feels to me like a chapter. It's as if Joe McCarthy or George Wallace had become president. 50 years ago today, July 1968, if you think things have never been worse, 46 Americans died in Vietnam. Not wounded, died. 46 a day in 1968. We would have just buried Dr. King, just buried Senator Kennedy. We'd be heading into uh, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago with that violence. November, George Wallace would win 13.5% and carry five states. I'd rather be dealing with Twitter than with Tet. Let me, let, let me pursue that a minute. <laughs> You said that the number of people in the 50s who thought the, the, the government was, could be counted on to do the right thing was about 77%, and today it's 17. Newt Gingrich took me down to Gallup uh, last year, and they have a list of countries where the people rate whether they think their government is corrupt or not, and uh, the United States is toward the top of that. Yeah. Um, we have, in our surveys, we see people say that we need extreme solutions to problems that we have. We've elected a president who says, let's make America great again. I'm gonna ask you, how do you reconcile that with this? The United States produces 24% of all the money in the world for 5% of the people. We have most of the great universities. We have by far the greatest military. 49 countries are our allies. We have the fastest computers in have the world. Have you checked that number today? Yeah. They may be rethinking it, but they... Uh, but we have the fastest computers in the world. They're in Oak Ridge. Our biggest political debate is, are we letting 
people in the yes. country, people are trying to get out. Yes. How do you reconcile those two things? It's why it gives me hope that this is not an irreversible decline into a weird combination of nationalism and populism and xenophobia. Trump is not new. What he is is the most vivid manifestation of some of the least attractive characteristics in the national character. And, and so you have, so we can't let ourselves off the hook. The reason I called this the soul of America was because it's not as though somehow or another, this just emerged as a problem. We have seen for generations upon generations a battle in the national character between, roughly put, Dr. King and the Klan. And sometimes one side wins and sometimes the other. John, you said to a, at a speech that I heard that when you walk in the White House and you see Nixon, you think China and you see Reagan and you think Soviet Union because uh, history is kind, you said, to presidents who reach beyond their own base to do something important for the country. That's right. What could President Trump do? <laughs> As we look down the road and you see his portrait there, what would be the opportunity for it's him as Nixon went to China and Reagan went It's a to vital Soviet question. Union. It's a very important question, and it's a serious one, and it's easy to be funny about it, but we can't be, because you can't keep pounding on somebody, and then if they respond to the pounding, pound away anyway. It may make you feel better, but it's not gonna help. The American Revolution itself is the greatest embodiment of the role that reason can play in the arena against passion, blind passion. When we just decide that we're not going to give any inch, we're not going to give any credit, we're not going to have any hope about a given person or party, we're not being true to the sacrifices that were made to put the country in motion because the revolution was the full political embodiment of the greatest shift that had happened in Western life, ever, I think. 300 years before the revolution, what had been going on? Gutenberg, the introduction of the democratization of information, the spread of, of information, the Protestant reformations, the translation of sacred scripture into the vernacular, and in the, the rise of the bourgeoisie, an entire reorientation of the world from being seen as vertical. Popes, princes, prelates, kings, who either by an accident of birth or an incident of election had absolute power over all of us. What was the American Revolution? It was the story of taking that vertical line of divine rights and making it horizontal and leading toward democratic rights. That's what the American Revolution was. And when, if you stand up and you're on that side of the aisle and I'm on this one, and before you even get to your feet, I think, oh God, I'm not gonna listen to that. Then I'm not being true to what started this great experiment. Now, you may stand up and you may make your point and 99 out of 100 times, I may think, God, they're wrong. But I bet in the hundredth, I might learn something. And if I close my ears instantly, 
then I'm foreclosing the possibility of reason to play a role in our public lives, and we can't do that. So to answer your question, Trump, uh, I'm not sure what it is, but he's got to do it. I think he believes that his duty is not to the whole country, but to those who support him. And I think that is fundamentally unpresidential. And I know, believe me, I know that many people believe we are on the road to totalitarianism. I really don't believe that, but the reason I don't is because you're here and you're thinking about it and you're working on it. A, the call for better angels is not just a prayer, it's actually a plan because we have overcome these remarkably difficult issues, and they weren't small issues. We're talking about fundamental human rights in this country, in this state. When I was 10 years old, 11 years old, there was a drive-by shooting in downtown Chattanooga. Klansman uh, shot a black woman. They were acquitted by an all-white jury. Smoke, riots, remember this in Chattanooga, 1980. Led the CBS Evening News. Jesse Jackson showed up. 11 years old, I'm watching the fire from this. Things are difficult. They'll always be difficult. But you're, you're doing the right things. You're thinking, you're working on it. You're making yourself heard. And that's all we can do. And I think it'll work. Let's give a thanks to uh, remarkable Tennessee and John Thank you.